did your effects arrive? They did. Mostly in the same geometry as they left. Hmm. Mostly. I would say 80% of the boxes were still box-shaped. 80? There were a That's few that were less Slightly shaped. disappointing. UPS was amazing. So they, I literally paid all this money to a private shipping company to make sure that all of these things made it safely. And so they're like, okay, you get to schedule a delivery. I'm like, perfect. I'll mm -hmm. schedule it for this exact date and time. So... I'm still out of town. I get the first call. It's the guy from UPS at my house in <laughs> Seattle. He's like, I'm here. I'm like, you're like four days early. <laughs> He's like, yeah, but where do you want it? I'm like, no, no, no. I scheduled the delivery. No one's there to receive it right now. That's why I scheduled it. And he was like, oh, okay. No problem. We'll just reschedule it. <laughs> so he reschedules it. It comes. The truck comes back at the actual scheduled delivery time. And the guy's like, oh, man, I can't seem to find it in the back of the truck. Would you help me look? And then he helps me up into the back of his UPS truck, and we're crawling around in all the boxes. This is how people get murdered. Yeah. No, and he's just like, what did it look like? I'm like, a bunch of boxes. He's like, no, but anything else? Like, no, like a bunch of boxes. Like, literally, your truck is full of a bunch. <laughs> and he's like, well, I don't have it. I'm like, okay, but then, like, why are you here? <laughs> He's like, oh, it says it's scanned onto my truck, but it's not here. I don't know what happened to it. And then just like standing there like, shucks. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, okay. And I'm like, don't like, worry. This had no emotional value no, to me. No, yeah, no, no, completely not at all, you know, one, once in a lifetime irreplaceable stuff. So then he's like, well, okay, here's my, my personal cell, even weirder. Um, I'm going to come back tomorrow. I bet it just went onto another truck or something. I'll go find it and I'll deliver it tomorrow. Never showed up. And then I, like, had to call this private shipping company. Did you call his personal cell phone? <laughs> I did not. I did not call scary UPS driver's business cell phone. Um, and, like, they definitely had lost it and delivered it to some other random person. What? And had to spend days finding where it got delivered, get it back, and then deliver it to me. Oh, my God. And, like, I could tell when I got it, like, everything had, like, been rewrapped together. And I was just like, oh, my gosh. That sucks. Oh, it's terrifying. But finally got here today. All safe and sound. That's good. But I was like, this is the literally the experience I was trying to avoid. Yeah. UPS, literally the experience you're trying to avoid. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's pretty much. What can Brown do for you? <laughs> what, what, <laughs> <laughs> what can Brown do? <laughs> Question mark. <laughs> this is Charles. And this is Rachel. From BNV Radio. This is Design Goggles. At the heart of any design process is experimentation. We designers sketch and create, iterate and fail, and start the process all over again. And it's how we give birth to new ideas. Once upon a time, hand sketching and physical model making were the only two tools at an architect's disposal. A few decades ago, 3D and CAD computer programs replaced hand drafting and changed things. But in the last few years, a treasure trove of new technological breakthroughs have been unlocked for architects and designers. 3D printers, CNC routers, inexpensive recycled materials, and a whole new generation of open-minded designers and clients alike have led to an era where experimentation is celebrated. Now that architecture firms can start to create some of their own physical elements, 
What are the consequences for representing ourselves as makers? What are the pitfalls of this new era of experimentation where architects can iterate at blinding speed? Do we sacrifice quality for quantity? Or are more iterations faster actually better? To help us answer that question and more, we're joined today by Scott Crawford, principal and founding member of the tech studio at LMN Architects here in Seattle. Scott, thank you for making time to sit and chat with us. Thank you for having me here. I have been super psyched to chat with you for a while. We ended up next to each other on a blog, Design and Public blog. Right. And that was my first introduction to you. And I just started reading about tech studio and what it was doing. And I guess I sort of learned about it in reverse. The first thing that I learned about you guys was that you were making panels for a project and that you were making them in-house. And then I sort of went back in the history and discovered a little bit that you guys were all about experimentation and iteration and 3D printing. But how did it start in the beginning? Did you come first or did Tech Studio come first? So it's kind of both at the same time. (laughs) The chicken Um, and the egg simultaneously appeared. So a classmate (laughs) of mine, Dan Belcher, was a person enrolled in the MS program at the University of Washington in design computing. Mm -hmm. The funny thing with Dan was he didn't actually have any background in architecture. He had background in cognitive and neuroscience. Mm. But he was studying computer programming, was offered an opportunity to study, in a way, whatever he wanted at the University of Washington through Mm -hmm. the UW-Hit Lab, Human Computer Interaction Lab. And what Dan decided to do was join the architecture department because he thought that was a great way of taking what he had already been doing as research and extending it. So Dan and I knew each other before I was employed at LMN, and Dan had the curious position of approaching LMN and saying, hey, I'm a person that doesn't have an architecture background, but I'm really interested in working in architecture. And he actually did this with a bunch of firms in Seattle. And a lot of people said, wow, that's really fascinating, but we don't know what we would do with you, so therefore (laughs) we can't hire you. And LMN was the first firm that actually replied to him and said, we don't know what we would do with you, but we're willing to (laughs) see what happens. (laughs) And so as Dan went into that endeavor, you have to keep in mind, too, that this is like 2007, 2008, when this is all starting to happen. 3D printing was like a thing that maybe might happen. And there's starting to be the initial impressions of like a recession might be coming. (laughs) And so Dan is starting Mm -hmm. in this role at LMN. And as he is in that role, he's talking to me. And at that time, what I'm doing is trying to prepare for my MRK thesis. And what I'm getting fascinated with by that point is grasshopper. And not just grasshopper as a tool, but the whole idea of parametric modeling Mm -hmm. and how if you have the ability to go through iterations within the design process very quickly, Mm -hmm. and you're shifting your design in response to certain aspects of it in relation to, in particular, simulations, Mm -hmm. you can start to make informed decisions as a designer in a way that normally we count on others to kind of Mm -hmm. act as that check and balance. Right. Um, And for anybody who's not in the design industry, Grasshopper is a 3D modeling and animation program. Yeah. Visual scripting language, I would say, that allows you to take and essentially write the rules for how the design takes place. So Dan was talking to me. We then established this idea, I would say, in a way, first amongst ourselves and then eventually introduced it to the, the partnership fully, which at the same time I was being hired into LMN while still as a student and (laughs) them not necessarily being fully aware of what this transition was between Dan and I's mindset. But the overall idea was 
how can we take and incorporate these new technologies that are coming about mm -hmm. that exists outside of our industry, both on the software side of tools like Grasshopper happening, as well as all the CNC software and ways of working, the physical machines and the 3D printing that was happening mm -hmm. and questioning, what do you do with this as designers? You can't just take and adopt these things from day one. Right. You kind of have to figure out a way of incorporating into what you do. So that was what led to the beginning of this as an endeavor, which at this point has been 10 years going. So how did it transition from being purely experimental to changing on the fly actual physical panels that were going to be mounted on a building or on a wall? Right. Uh, it went from something that was purely art or purely speculation it, to now something that is there's a real physical yeah. result in your projects from your studio so there was a lot initially where we were operating under the perspective that what we first had to do was make people aware of what it is we were seeing within these technologies and that was actually part of the impetus for creating the group from the beginning there's limited opportunity on projects to actually experiment while you're under the constraints of deadlines. You're not going to take and say, you know what, we have this deadline coming up. I'm going to take this new tool that I've never worked with <laughs> yeah. before, and I'm going to try to do something different. And I think I might be able to pull something off by the time that right. it doesn't Or happen. I'm just going to burn all the fee and we won't. Exactly. We, yeah, like, we're just going to get fired. Yeah. Your client would fire you <laughs> yeah, at yeah. that point if they learned that that's actually that's so, how you were operating. And so LMN made the decision upon hiring Dan and then allowing Dan and I to create an R&D effort within the office that there needed to be room for experimentation. So as soon as that happened, the funny thing was like the two of us were kind of shuttled into the corner of the office because we weren't sitting with any project team. So it's like, where are you going to sit? Well, it's not with the project team because you're not working on that team. So you can sit over there. And it was kind of amazing at first because Dan and I were sitting over there and we were both getting to know each other better. We knew each other already at that point as friends, mm -hmm. but starting to technically test out the boundaries of what each of us thought theoretically was possible. And along those ways, we started realizing that the way that we were going to best operate with the rest of the office was to take and generate examples of here's a tool. And if we use this tool in this way, we can do this type of thing. Show that to the rest of the office. What do you think? Nothing? Silence? Okay. <laughs> here's another tool. If you use this tool, you can do these types of things. <laughs> and we started just showing these examples, but we weren't just showing them internally. We were actually broadcasting them through the blog that we had. And what was interesting was initially, I think we were getting a lot more response from the more global environment of those that were seeing what we were posting online than what we were posting internally. And what was interesting about that was we were getting a lot of other people who were also trying to dabble in these ways coming back to us with suggestions, feedback, which incentivized us to keep sharing these things. Mm -hmm. And as we kept doing that, I think we started to then gain a foothold internally within the office because we started proving things out. And really that came to a head when we did the first project that we got involved in, which was in a way an experiment, but it was trying to take and redesign a facade system from concept to documentation in three and a half months, mm -hmm. which fairly compressed amount of time to have a contractor looking over your shoulder. A brand new system, sure. The entire sequence of that happening. Yeah. And what we showed during that process was that we could provide all the necessary information to make those that were looking at it from more a quantitative point of view comfortable. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, we could qualitatively explore 
on the design side, what does this mean? What does it look like? Are we getting what we want out of this overall design? Yeah, I think you touched on something really interesting in that how important experimentation is in architecture, how little most firms get to do it. And I wonder what are the opportunities that you see in touching many projects now that you've, it seems like you've had a couple of significant interfaces with a couple of projects. Is there a way to spin it out where you can more deftly jump in and out of a project with an experiment you already have running and that another team can interface with you? Right. I think in a way, this is the the tension we've always been up against mm-hmm. of, in a way, there was this creation of an R&D group within the office. And mm-hmm. I think there's often the tendency to want to look at an R&D group as the group that's going to help solve all the rest of the problems. (laughs) And maybe that's too much to be asking of Mm -hmm. that group. And instead, what we were finding we were most successful with is being able to demonstrate how we could turn questions that design teams had kind of on their heads Mm -hmm. and say, maybe that's not actually the value of questioning it in that way, but what if we question in this way and now the contractor is involved in that questioning Mm -hmm. in terms of, How many parts are too many parts for a facade? Well, (laughs) if you're going to be taking casting pieces, there's a number related to too many custom cast pieces, too many molds that you have to make. Mm -hmm. If you're going to be making every part out of bent metal that's going to be CNC cut, you might not actually have any limits when it comes to the number of unique parts. Mm -hmm. And so part of what we, I think, over the course of having this R&D group within the office have been trying to develop as an understanding for the rest of the office is where those boundaries lie. And we're trying to put ourselves less in the position of directing teams as to this is what thou shalt do with a piece of technology (laughs) and instead offering them insights that what you're trying to do looks like a situation where you're going to need a bunch of custom molds, Hmm. which means that's going to take significant effort for someone to make those custom molds. So you need to start looking at a kit of parts. And if they're instead looking at a material system, which does not require a kit of parts, and it's some Something where it's like, okay, you're embracing a fabrication technology that actually allows for customization across all levels of what you're going to produce, then you can take and go buck wild on this one. And you can take and make every shape look different. But you need to make sure that whoever's going to make this in the end understands the rules under which you're operating. So at this point, I think the group has grown to a position to act more in the office as kind of helping to define the boundaries that we all should be aware of as designers as we enter into these things. And at the same time, we're also acting as the example for in our involvement on projects showing this is how far we can possibly push these things. And I think there was some tension early on, maybe not tension, There was some feeling out of possibility on our part to figure out where we could have the most impact on what was happening within the office. Mm -hmm. And we thought it should be on every project. We We should sit down with every project and we should figure out how every project was going to do this type of thing. The reality is... For a couple of people in an office, you can't really do that. So what you end up having to do instead is figure out how to show the examples for everyone else to then understand what those potentials end up being from an R&D effort. So it sounds like there's an additional level of translation you need to do between what's happening in your studio and with your teams. That sounds like almost an internal marketing effort. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And, And there's a lot of value there, too, because along the way, the things that we're discovering of what you can do with these tools, we see them as logical 
connections for everything else we've seen possible with these tools. The rest of the office looking at what we're doing is constantly questioning why. What is it you are even doing? And as you're doing it, like, what is the purpose of this? And those things, I believe, are embedded in how we're approaching this and how we're thinking about it. But when you have to present these things to someone else, you all of a sudden have the onus to explain to someone. Like, well, this is why this step takes place. (laughs) And this is what you're going to get along the way. How you can use grasshopper and not end up with crickets. Yeah. I mean. Get it? Get it? I I very much (laughs) like that. There's a part related to that that I think I like, which is for a long time, for me at LMN, been this tension between the idea of I think there's an industry-wide push to define people within practice who are design Mm -hmm. technologists. I actually believe they're the transition generation. And once they're transitioned, there will no longer be the term. Mm -hmm. That we've struggled for a very long time within architecture to understand what computation means for architecture. Mm -hmm. You go back even 30 years. We're trying to use AutoCAD to mimic the way we did things by hand. But now Mm -hmm. all of a sudden, computation is doing things that we have never once been capable of doing before. And there's a richness there that we need to be supporting and be aware of as a generation. And as that generation matures into leadership, realizing like this is, in a way, a future part of practice, part. Mm-hmm. Computation is not the answer to everything. Yeah. But is it, it's a tool we have to figure out. It seems like you're getting along that path of figuring out and how to pull that thread into the leadership areas, right? Because architecture has a bit of a reputation for being maybe slow to adapt to new technologies. That's a nice way of saying it. I should not use (laughs) just my hand. Yes. You know, so can you give a little hope to fresh out of school, younger crowd out there that maybe feels like they love architecture, but they're worried Especially in a city like this where there's so much tech everywhere. Yeah. How do you keep people in the industry of architecture who may be trending towards tech? How do you keep those people from leaving the profession? I think we need the people that know how to leverage these tools to be part of architecture. At the same time, they also need to be cognizant of the fact that they know a sliver Mm -hmm. of what it means to make architecture. You can be a master of these tools by the time you leave grad school. But you can have no conception of what the actual requirements are of contributing something to the built environment. Mm -hmm. And that's the challenge. Mm -hmm. And that's something that is not just the challenge for this current generation to figure out. It's for all generations to be part of this. That we need to be understanding when we have these people that have these skill sets coming into our practices, how do we employ them in a way that we're not telling them what to do? Mm -hmm. Because they have insights that we cannot have if you don't know how to do what they're doing. Mm -hmm. So they're operating in completely different ways. And so you have to support them in completely different ways. And you have to question them in completely different ways. Do you think there's a space for that to happen in small firms that don't have maybe as much room to to invest in I think small firms might actually be the most exciting places for these types of things to happen. But it requires that depth of investigation and desire to experiment. Mm -hmm. There's, I think, a lot of need right now when it comes to the use of computation and technology for people to not throw away what has happened in the past, but to hold in like a frozen moment for a second what we already know how to do to address what is in front of us as an opportunity and figure out how do we take advantage of that. And then once you start to enter into that, then all of a sudden snap into a point of view of like how we historically do things and look back Mm -hmm. and forth. Because I think something I experienced in the time that I was at the UW 
there was a bit of apprehension around the use of technology within studios, that it was going mm-hmm. to somehow make people not as capable of what they would otherwise be capable of if you just taught them to do things by hand. And mm-hmm. I was very resistant to that when I started. I actually learned how to use CAD software when I was in middle school. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was at home on my computers that my, like my dad would bring home. Like all that stuff was there. Mm-hmm. I got to see that stuff. Like I can remember very distinctly when I was in middle school, rotating models of probably an F-18 fighter jet <laughs> in 3D in wireframe. No yeah. surfaces. <laughs> yeah. No surfaces on like, the entire thing. And at yeah. times you're, you're rotating, you're like, Hanging, it's the, yeah. the cube flipping it out. I'm like, I don't even know what I'm looking at anymore, but this is the coolest thing I've ever looked at. And that stuck with me. That that was like a driving thing for me that by the time I went to grad school, I knew how to use SketchUp before mm-hmm. I was showing up. And mm-hmm. I was being taught how to construct perspectives. And it's like, I don't need that skill. <laughs> I understand like how that all works, but. I need to actually know how you shape 3D space. And Mm -hmm. I think we need to be embracing these tools, not wholeheartedly and not with like some technology is religion kind of approach, but wholeheartedly in the approach of computation is significant in terms mm-hmm. of how it can expand the human mind. There's just a bigger toolbox. It we is. have similar problems. You know, problems do change and evolve with context over time, mm-hmm. of course. But, like, there are some enduring problems because we as humans are not evolving fast enough to evolve out of some of the problems that we need for physical spaces. Do you believe that architecture as a profession is more afraid of technology now than maybe even it was at the advent of 3D and CAD technology? I'm going to expand it for a second maybe to just be provocative and say, (laughs) I think humanity is afraid of technology at this point. (laughs) That's Um, a great point. We have this absurd relationship in my mind, and I'm a person that does not exist within social media in the way that maybe others of my peer and age group do. So I don't have the baggage of that. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to technology as part of architecture and then I think humanity in general, we fear what we don't know. And it's unfortunate. Because there are aspects of this that those who want to know can actually know very quickly. Mm -hmm. They can endeavor to understand these things and they can then leverage them to do things that they were otherwise not capable of. So I think we're experiencing a bit of the transitional shift of there's a lot of really intelligent people who have taken and gained an education within architecture that are understanding what computation can do. And I don't think in any way they're a threat to historically what architecture has meant, but they're perceived as a threat. (laughs) And that I, I think is a problem. I think we're actually at a point now where the technology is actually going to take us closer to the roots of in like Renaissance time of what we perceived architecture as doing, the master builder, the being able to understand things at multiple scales, the ability to take and influence design in ways at multiple scales. We're getting back to those basics. Hmm. Like We're getting back to where a student in school learns about digital fabrication. They don't have to anymore be skilled in knowing how exactly to hold that material with their physical hands and push it through that machine in a way that they can act as a craftsman. Instead, they have the ability to have the machine be Mm -hmm. an extension of themselves. Doesn't mean the craftsman goes away, 
it means the designer all of a sudden has a way of engaging in a topic that otherwise they've been left out of for a while. So what about the Soonish effect? Soonish yeah. was that book yeah. about technology written. So, you know, uh, 3D printers have been around now almost a decade. I mean, in mass production and available and inexpensive for almost a decade. And I know a lot of people early on were like, these are going to be in everybody's home. They're going to be in everybody's firm. And for some firms it happened and maybe they have a model shop, but it wasn't this sweeping revolution in our industry. And I was one of those people. I was like, this is definitely going to happen. Like, yeah. we're going to be making our own hardware and we're going to be, even though it's inexpensive and even though this technology is easy to use, it hadn't caught on like right. we thought it would. And studios like yours are taking advantage. But why do you think that never happened on that scale? I think part of it is we're still outside of the actual making of our projects. So we go through a lot of phases, I think, of translation mm -hmm. of we do ink on mylar. And then we look at AutoCAD as layers. I mean, that, <laughs> yeah, right. that, that, that's the example that everyone right. always holds out there of like the transition from hand drawing to CAD. It's still layers of mylar. Yeah. And I think the 3D printing is still like, well. Thinking of it as a printer. I would take and I would make that model by hand in this way. So now I'm going to model the entire thing <laughs> and then I'm just going to hit print. And I'm going to stand for 12 hours <laughs> and I'm going to watch that machine. And make sure it does a good job. <laughs> Machine. Oftentimes, they don't actually even yeah. do a good job. Yeah. But we haven't taken and transitioned our process to make what we're making different. We're still expecting the same result out of new tools, mm -hmm. which in the end defeats the purpose of the new tool. You're asking of something old, of what that thing normally would be capable of doing, of the production of a physical model. You just come to assume that, like, well— this new tool, a 3D printer, is going to make that happen X number of times faster. Right. It's the only thing I have to worry about. It's how right. much faster is it? And we often have this discussion within the office around, is it optimizing the efficiency of how fast you deliver it? Or is it allowing you the ability to explore more things? Mm -hmm. yeah, how do you measure? And how do you measure that? There's no unit of measurement for you to describe to even your own colleagues the value of what you've done. But I keep thinking about the horsepower analogy that we still, after this long of developing cars, we still measure cars by right. how many horses value Well, and that's probably completely in lost in translation. Yeah. Like, I have no idea how much power no, a but horse you know the term. has. But it, we're right, but, yeah. it, but it has lost its original definition for right. me. It right. does not link back to a horse right. or a fleet and, of horses. And has, <laughs> right. over time, that horse actually become more of a marathon runner and it can actually <laughs> yeah. exist on fewer yeah. calories. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no need for barley. It's fine. But it's you funny know? how we do rely on the, the artifice. Well, but also technology is advancing so fast that mm -hmm. we are being too slow to rethink how we are interacting with that technology. For sure. You know, if it's just like a different way of printing and we're thinking of printing something in 2D, we're used to this concept of 2D printing and now we're going to print in 3D and we're not making that mental leap to understand that, you know, even though, yes, 3D printing did start with pancake layers of stuff. It was like yeah. a 2D way of making a 3D thing, but we have to be able to make that leap in our own minds in order right. to see where we could really go with it. The technology could probably go a lot further if we could figure out how to conceptualize it to take it there. Right, here's a weird question, really weird question. Is 3D printing a crutch because we're still afraid <laughs> of virtual conceptualization? Because to print something and ossify it is a very slow 
process yeah. compared to simply iterating yeah. in a screen or in a virtual space. So, so you mean like 3D printing versus VR? Yeah. yeah. So where I would go with that is to say the VR is something that we are embracing. And we are an office that very much believes in the large-scale physical modeling mm -hmm. of things, not just because you learn something along the way when you translate something into physical form. Like, if you have to build something, you all of a sudden realize, like, those curved shapes are really yeah, hard. Yeah, it's kind of expensive. <laughs> how yeah. the hell am I going to build that? Uh -huh. You learn how to do it. You mm -hmm. learn how to rationalize it in some way. But some things cannot completely be rationalized, so they don't fall mm -hmm. under that umbrella. I think what's more important, maybe, with the 3D printing is for us to reconceptualize what the parts and pieces of our buildings look like and how we deliver them. We put a lot of emphasis right now on 2D drawings. A 3D print cannot be conveyed in a 2D drawing. But I can take and give a fabricator a file for what a precast concrete panel looks like that is a 3D file that I would otherwise 3D print for my team to look at, mm -hmm. I can give that to a fabricator and they can then CNC out the actual either mock-up of it or the final version which becomes the template for making all the molds off of it for the rest of that process. That's where I think we are struggling right now as an industry is to recognize that we have deliverables that we can take and give to people that are the physical end of what we want, and they are also the design end of what we experiment with. And I find that beautiful, that I can take and I can print something out that's four inches by five inches and say, that's like the thing we want to make. And then someone else can take that model and scale it up full scale, mm. and it's 10 feet by 8 feet, and they're like, that's the thing we're going to make. <laughs> that's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> like, I can take and very economically make an artifact of what I want for the purposes of what I need to understand that in that part of the design process, and someone else can take the full-scale version of it, and they can produce the thing that they need to make the actual building. And I think we lose track of that in the process of, again, Going back to the way that we always do things, we're making models. We're making models of things. These models are abstractions of yeah, like what reality is supposed to be. From it. Like mm -hmm. architectural models before had a degree of you couldn't get away from the fact that right. even if it was not meant to be a diagrammatic model, it still is kind of a diagram because it's not literally a miniature. You right. can't you know you can't extrapolate this into yeah. being that. But now you really are talking about miniature versions of exactly the same thing, the same materials, yeah. the same composite, the, the same everything, just And it's shrunken. very fascinating how fabricators will respond to that conversation. Mm -hmm. When we show with models, and we are also moving at this point into mock-ups, showing into conversations with fabricators to say, this is our intent. We've used our CNC machine to cut mm -hmm. it out and to figure out how to take that flat thing and bend it into these pieces, and this is what we wanted to look at. Mm -hmm. That creates a completely different type of conversation than when you show up with a rendering and say, can you do this? Mm -hmm. Like It almost means nothing to them when mm -hmm. you show them the rendering. They yeah. don't get what thought has been embedded there, if there has been any thought. So it's a completely different way of communicating. And so right now you're talking about that level of communication with fabricators and things like that. But so what is your experience with communication with the clients or stakeholders in the thing? Because some people, they just are not visual people. They just yeah. can't picture a thing. Do you see a difference in, say, somebody that can take a scaled down, say, 3D printed model, which is a miniature, and abstract from that what the real space is going to be like versus 
that same person in a VR model, for example. Is it a thing that we need to maintain both because different people experience and can extrapolate and imagine for themselves spaces in different ways? Is it two ways to communicate an idea or is your experience that one of these is going to win over the other in how we communicate and translate designs to less visual people? I find that a really interesting question because in some respects, I think architects have been lying for a long time. Oh, yeah. I mean, hey, <laughs> I, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't actually think <laughs> that they really understand to the extent that they've tried to convey that they get what's happening in 2D. Mm-hmm. There are some masters that have happened in the past, which is like, you get it. Mm-hmm. Like you draw that plan and you draw that section. It's like, mm-hmm. holy mm-hmm. It happens in a way where you're witnessing their understanding of it. Well, there's a talent versus technology thing that's coming up now is the tools can't make you a good designer. Not at all. Period. No, And that's the thing. Ever. Mm -hmm. Never. I I think that mistake is made so often at every generation when 3D rendering came out, there was this thing where it's like, I'm really good at 3D grasshopper, so I must be an awesome architect. I I could not agree more. Can the tools help you communicate a bad design better? (laughs) It can. Like, it helps you communicate things. Renderings can look amazing. Yes. And they can still be for a thing that can actually yeah. not even exist from a physics point of view. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. that cantilever looks awesome. I'm sorry, but if you build it, it's going to fall. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there are always those issues. And I think to ignore those issues for a second and to instead say the opportunity that exists in front of designers when it comes to these new tools and capabilities that exist for them, they have the ability to describe their design ideas in such a way that I think a lot of others can more readily understand. You can make a contractor more readily understand these design ideas by showing a version of the model that shows how many parts and pieces there are. You can make a client understand what it is they're trying to achieve and buy by showing renderings of like, this is what the space is likely going to look like. You can make the mechanical engineer understand what this is going to be like by taking that same exact model and instead of showing the rendering view, show the daylight simulations of this is how much light we're talking about so the, having exposed. The art of this, this is not in it's in knowing which language to translate the design into for the person that you need to communicate with. Absolutely. And I think that's where we as architects at this point are becoming, if we choose to be, we're becoming empowered because we are being given the ability to have the universal language that we describe the geometry. Mm -hmm. The geometry holds all of it. You have material specs on top of that, which are going to help define what we're talking about. But otherwise, what we're showing should be seen at this point as a truth in terms of what it is we're creating. If it's not seen as that, if it's just seen as like some loose figural drawing of what it might end up becoming, it's not all that interesting, I think. Right. But when you have that ability to say, that's not only what it's going to look like, here's the quantity takeoffs. <laughs> right, right. How much material you have right. in that rendering. That becomes really powerful in the process to be able to collapse those two things of the aspiration as well as the execution into this one phase of reflecting on what it is you're trying to achieve. Both inside and outside your firm, are you and the experimental studio met with more fear? How much is this going to cost? How do we make sense of what you do? Or more excitement in the experimentation aspect? I think internal, Mm -hmm. there's not much fear. Um, Externally, there's concern of 
do you all think you can really do that? Because it looks really expensive. <laughs> yeah. Um, that was another question I had for you. Is like, do people just see dollar signs when you go into that first meeting? I call this the oh <laughs> multiplier. Um, it's the oh what are they actually trying to do? Mm-hmm. And you just times everything by two at that point. Um, oh, that is a smaller number than I was yeah, thinking. So yeah, <laughs> maybe so four. But what we have found promise within when it comes to this idea that Others will look at the complications of what we're doing, and they will see cost implications related to it. We believe that there's an opportunity for us to actually take and layer some intelligence onto how that process happens, at which point that concern dissolves away often. And it's, oh, now that I understand what it is you're trying to achieve, it makes more sense to me as a system. And I think that's a fascinating thing at this point in time where a lot of people are taking and using their past experiences to reflect on the new opportunities being put in front of them. And we kind of need to ask them to put that aside Mm -hmm. so that we can say, let me explain to you for a second what has gone into this crazy looking thing. Mm -hmm. And that's part of it. Like a big part of it is like, I've never seen anything that look like that. So why should I assume that I can make that for anything close to what I would normally make something with that material for. Yeah. Well, let's explain the logic That's of materials they... and the machines and the process and the, how yeah. we're going to track all these things. And that all comes from the technology that we're employing to carry this out. Yeah. It's not like some magical thing of like we figured out a loophole in the system. <laughs> we figured out how to make it feasible by leveraging the technology to ease the things that would normally be the pain points. Right. And make people say like, that's not a pain point anymore. If you know what you're doing, you look at oftentimes what we're turning over to fabricators to say, I get it. Like I see the shortcut to mm-hmm. the end. And it's not something where it's questioning like, I got to make 900 different things. How, how do I even start <laughs> to count them? Right. <laughs> That's cool. And it's an amazing that you've been able to get people to take that leap of faith and to have the conversation yeah. in the beginning. When you go into a room like that where you know you're going to have to sell the idea a little bit, how much do you expose them? Do you bring them into the studio? Do you bring examples of stuff you've done on other projects? Or do you just kind of sell the dream? Do you go in and you're like, we've already figured out the panel system. Just stick with me. Like, how do you approach it when you need that leap of faith? I think we're still approaching it on a uh, one-off kind of approach. Uh We're reading the audience (laughs) and we're trying to figure out where the pain points are Mm -hmm. for the others. And I think this is actually a really important thing as part of this, that we should not ever consider ourselves as architects to be these masters of knowledge that others just need to sign on to and then it'll all be clear. Mm -hmm. We're not operating under the guise that like we got it all figured out. Mm -hmm. We're questioning things in a different way than people are used to. And in the process of questioning those things in different ways, You have to make an argument based on evidence to get there. And I think because of that, our documentation of these types of things tends to try to preempt questions so that we put out information that no one would ask for otherwise, unless they were in a position to know, when I look at that thing, it seems really hard. And what I would really want to know is this. If we can understand that before that question has ever been asked and say, someone's going to look at this and say, there's 900 different parts. How do I know which one is which? And how do I know how what I'm making is going to fit into the overall assembly? If we can take and build into our documentation a way of 
showing them before they've ever had to ask us directly that question, that they can be like, they have this other information they've provided me. Mm -hmm. And that allows me to understand that what they're trying to do looks like this. And then I can answer my next question by looking at those takeoffs they gave us in terms of the overall area of all those things they want us to make. You start to give them the ability to answer their own questions Mm -hmm. and come to you with confidence of like, what I next need from you is this piece of information. I'm pretty sure you can provide it to me because everything you've already provided has allowed me to get to this point of understanding. And so I think that is a large difference from the historical tendency of architects to not close out dimensions. You're going to dimension all along an elevation. You don't put that last one to say what the overall is. But we're developing models at this point that we can have confidence to say, there's that many square feet in that panel. Mm -hmm. Like You make it how we drew it. And it's that big. Right. Like, there's no second guessing this. Like it's all three dimensional. It all has the tolerances built in. Uh-huh. But that requires a process that you know that while you modeled it, you simulated what is actually necessary right. to make it happen. That also though requires an abundance of technology to be able to leave no tolerance. So there is where I, I will say there a divide in what's possible in the profession is begun to be created. Yeah. Because most of the profession, even with large civic projects at times, don't have that abundance of technology. Yeah. Like, let's say, a school yeah. versus a museum or 500,000 square foot civic building where you have craftsmen working in wood that need those tolerances yeah. to survive. Yeah. So that's interesting because then that, te- that technology may be... Is the technology, I'll ask this in a question, too precise to translate to the other half, I might actually posit it's way more than half, of the profession and the contractors of the world that don't have the abundance of technology on their end? So any of us employing technology need to understand the limits where you cannot sign off on its authorship. There's... A use of technology at which point, if you're sloppy, you need to basically say, like, I faked it. <laughs> it it'll make a really good rendering, but I faked it. <laughs> right, like, right, right. It kind of works for the rendering. That's it. <laughs> so I experienced something along these lines with the project for the Seattle Symphony, mm-hmm. Octave 9, where we made the ceiling. Mm-hmm. So we went through the design of this entire thing. Mm-hmm. We have all of these closed polygon cells that make up the ceiling of that thing. If you take and directly translate the digital model into the physical unfolded cut files and then you cut that thing out and then you take that thing and you fold it up and then you put it on a plot of how big it's supposed to be, it's wrong. It's Hmm. immediately wrong. Interesting. The physical artifact does not match the digital artifact. Mm -hmm. And that's because the physical artifact has embedded within it the physical properties of the material. Right. And the fact that when you go to make a fold in that material, it does not fold like a piece of paper mm-hmm. on an infinitesimally thin line. Instead, it radiuses itself. And in that radiusing, it shifts yeah. all your dimensions. You lose that fraction over and over and over and over again, yeah. And when you start to calculate that out, it's actually fairly significant. Right. Luckily, we were involved to the very end in the production of that ceiling to where we learned that. Mm -hmm. And as we learned that, luckily we had not cut every single thing for the entire ceiling. (laughs) We were just starting on the prototyping side. And so as we saw that, we realized, well, there's a shrinkage. 
factor that we mm -hmm. have to take into account because as you fold these things and you get the radius going into the curve, there's a certain amount of length you have to subtract from it. And every angle of fold actually requires a different amount of shrinkage to happen along those joints. And so we started methodically looking at it and testing and questioning and figuring out a process for what that looked like to make those kinds of modifications. After we did a series of prototypes to test out how that shrinkage happens over various angles, that got built back into our digital model. Oh, interesting. So the digital model actually corrected for all the physical anomalies that would happen through the folding of these materials. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of amazing to have that process of you go through the digital design and you make an artifact and you realize that artifact is not representing reality. Mm -hmm. You modeled something, like mathematically, like everything should yeah, be pure yeah. and simple, but it didn't take into consideration this aspect of it. And so then as you integrate that aspect back into the end product of the digital model, it has the ability to churn out the other result, which does physically match from physical to digital. It's so fascinating. But you have to create the translation. Yeah. You have to specify what that scaling factor looks like. So are you, are you feeding that back in a bigger scale? Like, does that become open source technology and that from this point forward, there's an understanding that when you use this material, these are these properties that we have now digitized to describe what happens when you fold it at this angle? Or is this Ooh, all is internal? Interesting. I would question. say it's a very fascinating question. And I feel like in the realm of the physical material, that's not one that we've had very often. And in the broader perspective of parametric models and what we do within them, how do we convey them into future opportunities? We're still in the realm of what we've historically done, which is word of mouth. Mm -hmm. You pass these things on by making others understand. Because the circumstances under which we're dealing with that particular situation on this project, we're making it work mm -hmm. for it. It's not an absolute. In sheet metal, there is a factor that you're meant to use, the K factor for like how sheet metal bends and mm -hmm. how it radiuses given its thickness in the corner. We're taking material that like has nothing like mm -hmm. a K factor and we're inventing our own K factor around it. But At as that you point build that knowledge. I, I would say the process for how you attain that knowledge is what we convey to the next round of study mm -hmm. rather than trying to freeze that knowledge in such a way that we're passing it on to the next iteration or team that does it as a way of saying like, you should just build on this. It's mm -hmm. instead, you need to question things at this level mm -hmm. because I think we're still very much at a point where we're dabbling at the edges of things and it would be Danger is maybe too far an extension of the word, but it would not be fortuitous of us to say that we could predict what is going to happen from here. Sure. Instead, but it's proof of we, concept still. We've shown a process. Mm -hmm. well, we've shown a process how to get knowledge. to a proof of concept and say, like, it worked. Yeah. We got it all installed. It all fit. It did not expand <laughs> beyond the limits yeah, yeah. of the room. Yes, <laughs> we got it. <laughs> and that's the goal. That's the immediate goal is to say, like, done. We learned. Now, what do we do with what we learned? And I think what I'm stressing from my own point of view is computation is not the learning mechanism there. 
That's still the individuals looking at it and saying, what did we get? What do we figure out? Well, so how about machine learning? Like, is there a point in time when all of our human experimentation and trial and error and, and finding and gathering this data about new materials and the way that we're using them, that once we have some sort of initial data set that we can put into something and have machine learning take over, is there an opportunity there for us to make much greater leaps and bounds in the things that we can do faster? Or do you see that Perhaps. that is just still very much very far in the future? Yeah, I think I am the worst design technologist in the sense that <laughs> I don't actually believe wholeheartedly in technology. Um, <laughs> I, I don't think it's going to save us. It's actually going <laughs> to screw us in the end. Uh, it, it, if, if we're that lazy. make you a bad technologist. I, don't yeah. think, no. <laughs> I think it makes you a realist. Like, yeah, <laughs> it, it, if we're expecting that technology is going to offer us answers, it's never going to and we're going to be left with like a handful of stuff that we're like, why'd it go wrong? So let me just rephrase for a second because I don't mean that it will provide us answers, but more like it's another tool in the box. I think machine learning is extremely fascinating because I would love the idea that I could take and be the physical conduit towards understanding a material by testing all of my intuition Mm -hmm. against that material. And if some way I could leverage machine learning to try to draw out the overall understanding from Mm -hmm. my investigations Mm -hmm. that in a way come intuitively from what I have experienced so far. Or simply just do it faster. Right. That I think could be an amazing benefit. Uh The challenge ends up being that even when it comes to machine learning, we have to tell the machine what we actually want to learn. Mm -hmm. And so oftentimes it becomes this fraught situation of, Do we know enough about what it is we're trying to explore to tell the machine what it's supposed to look? And because of that, there's, I think, this still beautiful moment right now where we are absolutely the collaborator with the machine. And the machine actually doesn't have any relevance until we invite it into the process. And we should be mindful of that because we're in control. We have the ability to define these things. So is your greatest fear when that flips and we are not? <laughs> I don't. It's <laughs> not so not much a fear because or... I think at that point, all we've done is we've accepted as a larger whole that we've decided so-and-so's algorithm is good. It's like saying That's like a, that scares Z- me. Zaha Hadid, Buckminster Fuller, whoever's <laughs> name you want to put into that blank, they figured it out. They're good. Like if we could just throw it through their filter, they have it, and we should move on. You know, it's funny. Really early in the show, you mentioned the Renaissance. Uh, And in the Renaissance, when they had to sell a church design that was going to take a century to build, they would often take a year and build a 20-foot prototype of a 200-foot cathedral. Right. And they would build it exactly. And then they would invite the client group to walk through the smaller scale but exact flying buttresses and the yeah. big spans because no one could believe that they could build something so big or build spans yeah. so wide. And it's ironic that that cycle is full circle and we're building the one-to-one cathedral again, but we're doing it with technology instead of yeah. artisan. And it's fascinating because it's architecture, it's marketing, it's storytelling. We're also literally doing the other thing. I am probably going to get the details incorrect, but it might be Brunelleschi's dome in Florence. Yes. Isn't there somebody now, currently, that is building a miniature version of it? It's in a park somewhere in Europe where they've been building it and trying to figure out how to make it work because some of the way that the, 
oh, I don't know. I wish I could get this right. The it's like the way lane. the brick works yeah, inside. Yeah, because they spiraled it yeah. around yes. the outside yes, you know what to I'm make about. it close on the top. And they're trying to with no recreate this mark. now. Yeah. And so it's like there are technologies that we... I, Still I don't understand. Technologies, you yeah. know, processes, systems. We're rediscovering. We're rediscovering yeah, things. yeah. And, and at least we can rediscover that because it literally still is standing and exists. Yeah. But mm-hmm. what's going to happen when we now we're, we're going to get real dark? Stuff. You know, when we destroy it. They showed us a stress diagram of a flying buttress, mm-hmm. and it's like it's too complicated to even pull apart. Right. Because the stresses are on these all these parabolic well, directions. And, and, and also the stresses actually... come to like the very edge yeah, of yeah. like what members were modeled as. And you're like, <laughs> yeah. did you really know you were doing it yeah. up to that edge? We or did still... you just guess and say like, I think I got it. Yeah, we still can't even <laughs> necessarily explain how they worked Such on the Such a great place. metaphor for actual like emotional stress. <laughs> That's right. We still have no idea yeah. how to solve that. <laughs> just right um, up to the edge. <laughs> I can actually talk about this all day, but we're running out of time. I definitely do want to ask you, though. Where do you see the technology studio going in your best version of the next 20 years? What role do you want to have? Do you want it to have? Yeah. Not just in LMN, but yeah. for the for the profession. Yeah. We have a, I would say it's a story because I think it's not going to play out this way. We have a story that we like to assume could happen, which is that if we're really good at what we're doing, the tech studio is going to become obsolete and the very near future. Mm -hmm. And it then has no use because we've embedded all the thinking within that group into the rest of the office. And I think that's something that we like to tell ourselves as an incentive to say these situations are going to be constantly changing. So we can do that now. But if what the tech studio looks like now is able to answer all of its questions by the end of, say, next year, then by the end of next year, the tech studio should look completely different. Because that means there are other questions that we need to be asking as a group to the rest of the office. And I think the value of our group within the office is to be the instigators that exist on the edge of what we're doing. And we poke and we watch and we question, well, why are we doing it that way? Why is this the way that we are choosing to do these things? And for that reason, I actually don't think the tech studio will ever disappear as part of the mindset of the office because there's always the need to poke at the edges to understand where we should be going next, what we should be playing against, where we should be exploring. Those are things that will never disappear. No matter how hard we ever try, there's going to be new things we have to figure out. And because of that, we're always going to need a group that can figure those things out before they're necessary on projects. Mm -hmm. So I like that for us as an office, that we kind of have this plan that we can make this group obsolete. And at the same time, if we ever think it's obsolete, that's also an indication that we've become lazy (laughs) in terms of how we ask questions. Well, that's awesome. This has been fantastic. Thank you so much for coming in and giving us your time. I can't wait to see what happens with the tech studio. What's up next for you guys? We're uh, a group of six people at this point within an office of 170. So you can't really ever understand where that's completely going. Every person is kind of determining a different path to make the office aware of. But I think more than anything, what we're focusing on at the moment is research that actually has the ability to directly influence how we reconsider the program of our projects which I think is both exciting for us as well as our clients to be able to question these things in a way that is more performance-driven 
in terms of the outcomes than just aspirations. Makes sense. Do you think that, because yes, that makes total sense to me that, that the ultimate goal would be that the tech studio becomes, I was going to say irrelevant, but because it becomes so integrated, it is part of the greater whole. Right. Do you think, therefore, that that is, in fact, cyclical and that as that happens, that it, it can't be that the tech studio itself you know, renews itself, but it's really more that a new outsider group needs to come in, like a new seed, a a new whatever the current new thing needs to come organically and start up the way you started it up. Or can it continue to, you know, be like, uh, I don't know, I'm looking for like a botanical metaphor, like a perennial that's going to keep growing. I I think I was the first generation. (laughs) I think there are many generations to come. I don't think there is ultimate value in me trying to persist as the leader of this group. Because in the end, I am going to become the older generation. I'm going to become the person that is in the position that those that are in school right now are going to look to and say, but you're thinking about it differently (laughs) than what I currently see. Mm -hmm. And I welcome that person to come in and be like, Mm -hmm. tell me how Mm -hmm. I should be seeing things that I cannot currently see. Show me what I cannot see yet. And that, I think, is the ultimate goal of the group, Mm -hmm. is to have a group of individuals within an office that provoke discussion. They're not meant to be beholden to deadlines. They're not meant to be beholden to clients. They can be on the fringe and challenge things in a way that makes others uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And that's extremely valuable. But what we need from that group is conviction for a way in which they see a future that we do not see it yet. And the belief in the idea that you've created a space that is perpetually open Absolutely. for the next, next new thing. That is the ultimate goal, mm-hmm. that while the idea might be gets absorbed, that's the idea for every generation. It gets mm-hmm. absorbed. And it's like, okay, we absorbed those ideas. We're moving forward. That's how we iterate. Who's the next group to make us challenged to say, there's some new things you need to absorb because we're not fixed. We're not going to ever be in a steady state where it's like, finally, we got rid of all that innovation. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. That era of innovation oh couldn't God, end so soon glad. enough. <laughs> now all we're those just new like, ideas were just ruining everything. down that stream Actually, having a good time. I, I don't want to get fatalistic, so I'm definitely going to end the show now before I, before I actually respond to that. Because <laughs> I want to end on an optimistic note. QED. So th- it is done. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. Thank you for joining us. And thank you very much for listening. Check out Design Goggles Podcast on Instagram and Design Goggles on Facebook and Twitter. Also, check out our blog on boredandvellum.com. There is always super cool stuff being posted there. And as always, please stop on by Board and Vellum in Seattle for a chat with us anytime. We would love to have you. Thank you again, and we will see you all in a few weeks.